invite you to take your copy of scripture this morning and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we are going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. Last week we started a series in uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we're going to continue that series this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've provided one for you. You should find one in one of the chairs uh, that's located there around you. Or if you're sitting up in the balcony, you should find one in the uh, pew there. And if you're using one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage on page 980. So Philippians chapter 1, last week we looked at verses 1 through 8, and we'll pick up this morning at verse 9, and I will read through to verse 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. This is God's word. You know, uh, we announced this morning the birth of another baby. And uh, when a baby first learns to communicate, what we notice about a baby's communication is that largely when they first begin to communicate, the communication is uh, expressing what they want. So if a child is hungry or a child is scared or a child wants to be held, they cry, right? They express what they want. They express their desires and their needs through communicating. And then as a baby begins to grow and mature and is able to use words, usually the first words and favorite words of any child are words like mine, right? Or now, Uh, Children use their words when they first begin to talk to express their needs and their desires, what they want. That's mine, and I want it now. And then as children grow and mature, hopefully they begin to use their words not only to express their own needs and their own wants, but they use their words to take interest in the wants and desires of others and to express how they might even meet those wants and desires that others have. What would you like to do? Would you like a turn? How could I serve you? Well, prayer in many ways is similar. You see, prayer is communication. It's communication with God. And when we first start to use our words in prayer, if we're honest with ourselves, the first words that we typically begin to use in prayer are very similar to mine and now, right? God, I want, I want, I need, I need, and I need it now, right? And hopefully, and, and let me just say this, that's not all wrong. God wants to know our needs. He wants us to express even the desires of our hearts. And God's so patient with us, even as we read this morning from Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. But as we mature, hopefully we begin to use our words in prayer, not just to express our own needs and our own desires, but we begin to use our words in prayer for the sake of others. We begin to pray for their needs and their desires and their wants. And we not only use our words to pray for others, but we also pray for God. Now you may say, what do you mean pray for God? God 
God doesn't need anything, right? Well, that's true. God doesn't need anything. God is completely sufficient in and of himself. But the Bible instructs us that when we pray, we should pray, whether for ourselves or whether for others, that ultimately God's will would be done, that God's purposes would prevail, that God's glory and name would be made known and exalted and praised and worshipped. And so as we mature in prayer... By God's grace, we begin to use our words to pray for the sake of others and to pray for the sake of God's name. What we see in our text this morning is that Paul prayed like this. And because Paul prayed like this, through prayer, Paul didn't just get kind of all the things that he personally wanted, like he was going down his personal, you know, Amazon wish list and checking off all the things he wanted. Note, through prayer, God, through Paul's prayers, God changed people's lives forever and in fact changed the course of human history. Let me ask you this morning, do you want God to change the world through your prayers? Do you want God to change and transform other people's lives through your prayers? Do you want, through your prayers, for God to affect eternity? God wants that for us. God's inviting us into that. And if you want that, and I would encourage you to pay careful attention to the prayer of the Apostle Paul this morning for the church in Philippi. By doing so, we will learn how to pray, how to use our words in a way that our prayers are effective and bring glory to God. In our text this morning, we see that Paul prays a prayer for love for the day of Jesus. Paul prays a prayer for love for the day of Jesus. We'll look at it in three parts. Paul prays, then Paul prays for love, and then Paul prays for the day of Jesus. First of all, Paul prays. Look there in verse 9, and we read these words. And it is my prayer. So, earlier in this chapter, in verses 3 and 4, if you just go up a few verses, you see that Paul says there to the church in Philippi that he is praying for them. So in verse 3, he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And so we learn a number of things here. Paul is praying for the church in Philippi. He's in praying for them. He's thanking God for them. He's praying for them with joy. He remembers them regularly in prayer. And now as we come down just a few more verses, Paul mentions again how he's praying for them. He says in chapter 1, verse 9, it is my prayer. And then he prays that the church would abound more and more in love. And we're going to get to the specifics of what Paul is praying for the church in Philippi. But before we do, it's, it's helpful just to pause for a moment and to take note that Paul is in fact praying for the church. And this is not the only time in the New Testament that we encounter the Apostle Paul praying for a church. In fact, we see it throughout the New Testament. So, for example, when Paul writes the church in Ephesus, 
In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He goes on, that letter is only six chapters. He goes on in chapter three of his letter to the Ephesians to write this in Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 to 16. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So you could imagine the Apostle Paul, maybe on his side of his bed, bowing his knees before God. And he says to the church in Ephesus, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he might grant you. And then he tells him all the things, he tells the church all the things he's praying for them. So, church in Ephesus, I remember you in my prayers. I bow my knees before God and I pray for you. And these are the things I pray for you. Or when he writes to the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Or when he writes to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, With thanksgiving we can return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Or he writes the church in Thessalonica another letter, and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, he says, To this end we always pray for you. Now, this is what we see all across the New Testament in terms of how Paul relates to the church, how how his relationships with the church are characterized by prayer. And so we might assume as we read of all the things that God accomplished through the Apostle Paul, we might assume, well, of course, you know, God did great things through the Apostle Paul. He was an apostle. But, But we should recognize that the Apostle Paul never assumed that just because he was an apostle that his ministry would be effective. Rather, it is apparent from surveying the New Testament that in large part, the Apostle Paul's ministry was so effective because he so regularly and faithfully prayed. He so regularly and faithfully sought God and his blessing upon his ministry and upon the churches. We can almost imagine the Apostle Paul having a a prayer list. Maybe it's like a a little scroll, you know, that he kept with him every... I don't don't know. You know, on on that prayer list, he has the church in Colossae, the church in Philippi, the church in Ephesus, the church in Rome, the church in Thessalonica. And he prays for them constantly, repeatedly. He prays for them. You might be here this morning, you might say, well, you know, I want to pray for other Christians, and, and I want to pray for our church, but, but I just don't know what to pray. I've got a great solution. Just go to all the prayers that I just mentioned and all the prayers in the New Testament where you find the Apostle Paul praying for a church and pray those prayers. You can totally cheat, right? You can just rip off his prayers. You don't have to give him credit. There's no copyright laws here. You're not plagiarizing. Just Pray his prayers. That's the reason Paul's prayers are in the New Testament, to teach us how to pray for one another and how to pray for the church. 
One of the things that's so encouraging to me over the last several years is to see how our church is growing in prayer. I praise God for this. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but the women in our church have developed a prayer ministry, and it's wonderful. The women are sharing with one another prayer concerns, and they're praying for one another, and they're praying for our church. Ladies, all the ladies who are involved in the prayer ministry of our church, let me just say publicly, thank you. Thank you for following the example of the Apostle Paul right here and praying consistently and faithfully for our church. If you're interested in learning more about that prayer ministry, I'm, I'm sure you can talk with Cheryl Brown, our women's director, and I'm sure she would be happy to tell you more about it. There's also a group of members that in recent years has committed to praying for the elders and, and their families. And, and I know this, this group of folks, they contact me and Nikki regularly and ask us how they can be praying for us. Over the last several months, our pastoral uh, staff has begun to gather on Tuesday mornings, and we spend an hour together singing together and praying, and we pray for you. We pray for our church as a whole, specific needs within our body. God has called us to be a people of prayer, and I praise God that, that he is stirring within us a spirit of prayer, and one of the things I want to say is, let's just get behind that. Let's fan that into flame. Let's encourage that in every way that we can so that it's just natural for us to say, like it was for the Apostle Paul, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for our church. That, that those, those words just fell off of the Apostle Paul's lips because it was so such a reality in his life. He was always praying for the church. And so let me, let me ask you this. What, what rhythms, what patterns, what habits are you building in your life so that you might become a man or a woman of prayer? I shared with you all last week that the elders of our church are reading a book right now uh, entitled Prayer by John Onwuchekwa. And uh, in this book, John Onwuchekwa is trying to give an example of a prayer warrior that's impacted his life and how the example of a prayer warrior can really, really affect your own prayer life. And so he gives the example of his mother, and it's a beautiful example. And I think it helps because sometimes we think like a, a prayer warrior, we, we, we have kind of extreme thoughts of what that might look like. But this is just a really practical example of what this might look like in any of our lives. He says, quote, I remember watching her come home from work every day and greeting us briefly en route to her room. On those days when her bedroom door was cracked, I would squint through the opening and see her get on her knees by her bed to pray. She emerged a different person. She did this every day, and he has every day in italics. To this very day, she won't let me off a phone call until she prays for me. And if she forgets, she calls back and leaves me a voicemail, end of quote. There, John Onwichekwa is speaking about the power of a praying mother. And listen, my friends, it may look different in each of our lives. It may be that you get up early in the morning to spend some time in prayer, or it may be that after work that you set aside a chunk of time to pray, or it may be in the evening before you go to bed, or it may be a group of other men or women in the church that you commit to meeting with regularly so that you can pray together. It may be a combination of those things. It can look a whole lot of different ways, but, and, and I don't say this to place guilt on you. I mean, all of us could pray more, right? But, but just simply, what are some basic rhythms, patterns, 
habits that you're building into your life to ensure that you will be a man or a woman devoted to prayer. Paul sets us an example here. Paul prayed, and he prayed regularly. He prayed consistently for the church, and it is no wonder that God did so much through the Apostle Paul's life. Secondly, Paul prays for love. Now let's notice what he prays for in chapter, nine, or, um, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So Paul here prays that the church, their love would abound. Now I don't think it's particularly surprising that Paul would pray that the Philippian church would possess love. I do think it's interesting, though, that Paul prays here that they would possess love with knowledge. Do you see that in the text? It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, here it is, with knowledge and all discernment. And, and this, is the, this is the reason, the purpose, so that you may approve what is excellent, so that your love would abound with knowledge And with that love and knowledge, you would discern what is excellent, and then the assumption is you would act on it, you would do it, right? I think Paul here is actually pointing to a a couple of dangers that he's hoping that the Philippian church will avoid. The first danger is this. There is a danger to possess knowledge without love. Okay, so there's a danger to possess knowledge without love. There is also a danger of possessing love without knowledge. Let's consider each just briefly. First danger is knowledge without love. This is actually one of Paul's main concerns when he writes to another church, the church in Corinth. So when he writes uh, to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, Paul warns the Corinthians, knowledge without love puffs up. So you have knowledge, you know a lot, but you don't have love. Paul says that makes you, it puffs you up. It makes you arrogant and prideful and boastful. Or he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, to say, and if you understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, you're nothing. Okay? So so here's Paul's concern with the church in Corinth. The Corinthians were killing each other with knowledge. They knew all kinds of things, but they were just bludgeoning one another with knowledge. And it was causing division in the church. And so it is a mistake to think that more knowledge is equivalent to spiritual maturity. Have you ever been tempted to think that? We, we make this error sometimes, don't we? That if I just, I have more knowledge, then I am necessarily more mature. And that is not true. Now, is knowledge important in the process of spiritual maturity? Absolutely. But knowledge does not equal spiritual maturity. So Paul says, I can possess all knowledge. I could be the Bible trivia man. I can get all the, all the questions right, know all the answers, never lose an argument. But if I have not love, I am nothing. John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, 
commenting on this verse, he writes, quote, Now that knowledge of which you boast, O Corinthians, is altogether opposed to love, for it puffs up men with pride and leads to contempt of the brethren, while love is concerned for the welfare of the brethren and exhorts us to edify them. Accursed, then, be that knowledge which makes men proud and is not regulated by a desire of edifying, end of quote. So if we love people, the knowledge that we have will always be used for the purpose of building others up. Helping them see more of who Christ is and moving them more towards maturity in Christ. It's never to squash them. It's to help them. The second danger, though, is this. Love without knowledge. This is actually the focus here of Paul's prayer, and I believe that this is one of the grave errors of our own culture and society today. So in our society today, if you appeal to love, you can justify almost anything. So Even these last couple of weeks, many people have been rightly horrified by the law that was recently passed in New York that permits an abortion during the third trimester, even up until the point of the birth of a child. But but we have to understand that those who are advocating for this law actually make an appeal to love. The rationale goes like this. We are loving the mother. We are concerned for her physical and mental well-being. Therefore, we believe that a third trimester abortion, even up until the point of birth, should be justified. Now, let me say, we should be concerned for the physical and mental well-being of the mother. But but notice the, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, the twisted logic that an appeal to love would be used to justify the killing of a fully developed child. It's tragic. And so love without knowledge, and we could give many, many more examples, love without knowledge of God can be downright evil. There are many ways that plays itself out in our culture. Jonathan Lehman has written this on this point in a book he wrote called The Rule of Love. Listen to what he says. Quote, Today you can justify pretty much anything by invoking the word love. If they really love each other, then of course we should accept fill in the blank. Or if God is loving, then surely he won't fill in the blank. Notice what he says here. Yet notice what's happening in these statements. We're no longer interested in God who is love. Rather, we're interested in our own ideas of love, which become God. God is love is traded in for love is God. And so instead of going before the creator of the universe and saying, tell us what you are like and how you define love, we start with our own view of love and deify it. We make it God. 
This is love without knowledge. We start with what we perceive love to be or our culture perceives love to be or, our, or, or whatever it is, and then we make that God. And if you contradict my understanding of love, then you are necessarily contradicting God because I've deified my understanding of love. I've made my understanding of love God. And listen, we, we, we don't just need love that is informed by knowledge when it comes to kind of major societal and moral issues of our day. We need love that is informed by knowledge in all the particulars of our everyday lives. So there are clear commands that are given to us in Scripture like do not steal or do not commit adultery or do not murder. And those are pretty clear cut and we understand what we're to do there, right? But there are all kinds of other things that we encounter in life where there's not a clear command. So, for example, think about this. Think about your time. Like, how much time am I going to pray? That's one of the things we're talking about today. How much time in my day will I pray? How much time in my day will I spend reading the Bible? How much time in my day will I spend with my family? Or how much time will I spend in work? How much time will I spend building relationships outside of the church? How much time will I spend invested in the church? All of these are decisions we have to make. And we can't open our Bibles and say, okay, when it comes to time and work, we go to this chapter, this verse, and it tells us specifically how many hours we should spend in work this week. The Bible's not presented to us as case law so that there's a specific instruction or regulation for every case or situation or circumstance that we experience in life. Rather, the Bible often comes to us in principles, and then we need God's help and wisdom and discernment to apply those principles to the particulars of life. And so Paul prays for the church in Philippi. He prays that their love would abound more and more and that that love would be shaped and informed by the knowledge of God's word and the wisdom that comes from knowing God's word. And so, my friends, we need this in spades. We need love informed by the knowledge and wisdom that comes from knowing God's word. And we can pray this for our own churches. We can pray this for our body here that God would cause our love to abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. Third, we see not only does Paul pray, and not only does Paul pray for love, but then third, Paul prays for the day of Jesus. Paul prays for the day of Jesus. Look, this, look there in uh, chapter 10. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 10. And he says, So that you may approve what is excellent, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he he prays that they would be, their love would abound more and more, knowledge and discernment. The first reason is in verse 10, so that they would approve what is excellent. And then the second purpose or reason is found there in the latter part of verse 10, so they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, what is the day of Christ? What is Paul referring to here? Well, actually, Paul's already spoken of it earlier in the chapter. Look up in verse 6, and we read these words. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, here it is, at the day of Jesus Christ. 
So, so he's, he's made reference to the day of Jesus twice now in 10 verses. And the day of Jesus is a reference to that day when Jesus will return and he will complete our redemption. As, as one hymn writer has put it, we will be freed to sin no more. Okay, so, so we will experience full and complete redemption in terms of our own souls. We'll be freed to sin no more. Not only that, but we'll be given new bodies that are free from corruption and free from death. So we'll be fully redeemed, both soul and body. And so Paul prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment so that they would be ready for the day of Jesus Christ. They would be ready for the day when Jesus returns. One commentator has pointed out that this is, this is not a veiled threat that Paul is issuing here to the church in Philippi. Like, you better be ready for that day. But rather, it's an encouragement. And I think that's right. You know, sometimes the Bible speaks of the return of Jesus as a warning. So, so, so Jesus is coming back and, and, and you need to be ready or you will face the judgment of God. But many times the Bible refers to the return of Jesus as a source of encouragement. And it's intended to encourage believers. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, listen, church, you are a loving church. You've loved me. You're loving one another. I'm praying that your love would abound more and more. And the reason why I'm praying your love would abound more and more is because Jesus is coming back. And that means that, that all your love and all your labor and all your sacrifice now has meaning and significance and purpose. So that when you die, your labor and love and sacrifice won't die with you. But rather it will extend into eternity because everything you do in this life now counts. For then, when Jesus comes and he rewards all those who have walked in obedience and faith to him. Now, I remember when the Lord first grabbed a hold of my life, this was something that just really gripped my heart. That now that I had committed myself to, to following Christ and to, to walking in obedience to him, that, that my life had meaning and significance and purpose. That, that, that my life was not just about pleasing others or being cool or experiencing temporary pleasures in this life. But my life, what I did now, for the sake of Jesus, in Jesus' name, out of love, would count for eternity. Now listen, my friends, that'll give you a reason to get up in the morning. And Paul tells the church in Philippi here, I'm praying for you that your love would abound more and more. Because listen, it's going to count. Jesus is coming back. And I want you to be ready for that day. Paul is, is praying and he's hopeful that this church in Philippi will be fully prepared for that day. So notice what he says, that I want you to be pure, I want you to be blameless for the day of Christ. And notice this in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, as we consider what Paul says here and then what he says in the larger letter of Philippians and his other writings, it is evident from the Apostle Paul that on the day of Jesus, all Christians, if we are to be ready for that day, we are to possess two types of righteousness. 
And listen, if you want to be ready for that day, it's important that you understand this. On that day, if we are to be ready, we are to possess two types of righteousness. The first is a righteousness that is not yours. And the second type of righteousness is a righteousness that is yours. So first of all, if we're to be ready for that day, we must possess a righteousness that is not ours. The Protestant reformers referred to this as an alien righteousness. Now, I know that sounds strange to many of us, but alien communicates the idea that it's outside of us, that it does not belong to us, that it belongs to another. And this is actually the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that if we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected for our salvation, then Jesus willingly takes upon himself our unrighteousness, our sin, and he dies in our place on the cross. But that's only half of the good news. Not only does he take our sin and unrighteousness and die in our place, then his perfect record of righteousness and obedience is credited to our account. So that when God sees us, he does not see our unrighteousness, which Jesus has accounted for, but he sees the righteousness and obedience, perfect obedience of Jesus, his son, and he receives us as his own. If we are to stand before God and be ready for the day of Jesus, we must possess a righteousness that is not our own. The righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. Now listen, this distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. Every other world religion says that the answer is inside of you. That if you want to be made right before God, you've got to affect some kind of moral, spiritual change in your life to make you right before God or nature or the universe or whatever it is. Christianity is the only religion that says, no, the answer is not inside of you, it's outside of you. It's outside. Look outside. Look to Christ by faith and he will grant you freely as a gift his righteousness so that you will be forgiven and that you will stand before God righteous on the day of Jesus' return. So we must possess a righteousness that is not our own. Secondly, we must possess a righteousness that is our own. This is what Paul is referring to in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now this is the righteousness that comes when we have trusted in Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins. He's given us his spirit and now he's transformed us and changed us. And by his spirit, love is abounding in our life more and more according to the knowledge and discernment of his words so that good deeds are flowing out of our lives so that we are loving our neighbor. We are loving our uh, small group. We are loving our church. We are loving our community in ways that honor God and are consistent with his word. This is the type of righteousness that is produced in our lives by the power of Jesus. And notice that both of these types of righteousness, that which is not our own and that which is ours, comes to us through Jesus. He says there, it's the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. 
So both come to us through faith in Jesus and dependence upon Jesus. And therefore, as you see in the text, they are not reasons to glory in ourselves, but rather to glory in God, to the glory and praise of God. Now, this is the final thing I'd want to say here. As Paul is praying this, this prayer for the church in Philippi, just notice this. And this. I hope this is encouraging to you. Paul prays this prayer for the church in Philippi because Paul is fully persuaded that this is possible for the church in Philippi. That it is possible that when Jesus returns, that on that day, the church in Philippi would stand before Jesus clothed in his righteousness, possessing a righteousness that is not their own, filled with the fruit of righteousness that Jesus by his spirit has produced in their lives. That they would be ready for that day. And listen, my friends, if it is possible for the church in Philippi, it is possible for you, it is possible for me, it is possible for Crawford Avenue Baptist Church that on the day of Jesus, we would stand before him, clothed in his righteousness by grace, filled with fruits of righteousness that he has produced in our lives by his spirit. And that day would be glorious. And so let's pray for it. Let's ask for it. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying for the church in Philippi. That's what, by example, he's He's instructing us to pray for one another and to pray for our body that we would be ready for that day. Let's pray and ask that he would do it. God, we thank you and praise you for your word. God, we thank you for the gift of prayer that as we seek you in prayer, that, Lord, you work and you move, that you change us, that you change us individually, that you change us as we're in community together. That, Lord, you do things in our lives and in our churches that truly affect eternity. So, Father, I thank you, Lord, for all those who are here this morning who are faithfully praying, and I know they are. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them and Lord, I pray for those who may have become weary in prayer or maybe have not ever devoted themselves to prayer. Lord, teach us to pray according to your word. And God, as we seek you in prayer, help us to grow in love and, and not just a mushy, sentimental love that's not defined or is defined by our own sinful desires and wants, but a love that is defined by your word your truth that is consistent with who you are. And Lord, we pray that as we act upon that love and as we walk in faith and obedience, that we truly would be ready for the day of Jesus. Lord, help us now as we come to the Lord's table. We pray, Father, that this would be a time of repentance and rejoicing. Lord, help us to remember what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray that you would strengthen our faith. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.